Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Hello everybody and welcome back to Politics Uncensored with your host Ali Milani. I am delighted to have you back for another episode of Politics Uncensored. I'm also delighted that uh, in between week one and week two I was not cancelled. So we're still here and we're still talking about the issues facing uh, our politics across the UK and the world. Um, we've got an amazing show for you this week. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at gender equality uh, and gender-based violence uh, in particularly the issues that face young women uh, in the UK uh, and issues surrounding sexual harassment and violence. Uh, I'll be speaking to Shay Faludin Lebird, who is a co-founder of Level Up, Vera Hophouse, Liberal Democrat MP for Bath, and Jess Lee, spokesperson for Our Streets Now. But first, I'm joined by a brilliant co-host, uh, Ellie Flynn, investigative journalist and broadcaster, who has made a number of documentaries for BBC and Channel 4, and has looked at the rise of dangerous landlords exploiting vulnerable women, the issues of sexual harassment, and most recently and prominently did a wonderful documentary uh, on sexual harassment and violence, um, which featured Ellie pretending to be drunk outside of a club and seeing the reaction she gets. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellie. Thank you for having me. It's great uh, to be here. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that, that documentary? Because it's, it's gone everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I was so surprised by sort of how much it took off. Um, so yeah, I mean, as you just as you said, it was a documentary looking at the scope of sexual harassment facing women and young girls today in the UK. Um, and one of we, we did a series of experiments, um, and one of them was me being sent dick pics um, on dating apps, which I was like inundated with. Um, and then the one that that sort of really got picked up and went viral was um, me pretending to be drunk on a night out in two locations in the UK. Uh, in London and in Liverpool, um, and I was followed um, and harassed on multiple occasions by men um, who s seemed to notice that I was drunk um, or apparently drunk, and then tried to take advantage of that. So yeah, it was scary stuff. Yeah, and I think um, one of one of the striking things since those the clips have come out and gone viral is the number of women who've spoken about how that is very much their experience on nights out, and mm. you know you didn't you di i don't think you portrayed in your documentary uh you know the extremes or something going really wrong on a night out but this is a regular experience for women in the uk mm, exactly and that's i think that was what was most striking for me um after the documentary went out i was getting all these messages and from men it was like oh my god i can't believe this happens and from women it was like yeah here are five, five times that yep. that exact same thing happened to me and it was just really really resonated yeah and i think um one of the things that I think our listeners, the men listening could do is if you're in a group, a social circle with a number of your friends who are women, they will tell you just the everyday experience of issues of sexual harassment, sexual assault that go on every day. And I think your documentary uh, highlighted that. And we're going to talk about that um, uh, a little bit later on. But first, we've got the week unwrapped where we talk about the most pressing uh, political stories uh, in the UK. Uh, and first, we're going to talk about Hamza Youssef, uh, the new Scottish National Party leader uh, and now Scotland's first minister. Uh, Hamza is the first uh, Asian uh, who Asian Brit who has become the leader uh, of the SNP and the first minister. Uh, he's the youngest first minister at 37. Uh, and like I said, the first uh, from a minority ethnic background. This is huge. We now have a prime minister from an Asian background, we have a mayor of London from an Asian background, uh, and we have a Scottish first minister from an Asian background. What do you think that has to say about the UK? Where are we at? Um, I mean, it's it's certainly progress from where we were 20 years ago. Absolutely. I think that, yeah, it's huge progress. And I think it's something that as a country we should be really proud of. Um, and I think that it, you know, it, it does say a lot about the, the progress that's been done over the past few years. So I think that will be it's just so, so great for like I think kids who are growing up today who like want to hold those positions who want to make a difference to be able to see people who are like them being represented in the most powerful positions in the country um I just think that's you know that's always a good thing yeah I, look I remember when I was a kid and we would turn on the news or we would see uh PMQs or whatever not that we watched it at any great frequency <laughs> um but you know the common thing is they don't look like us they don't sound like us they don't know what life is like like us and I think you know, I'm certainly not an advocate for representation as, you know, just that sort of res representation is all that's needed. I think policy and, and politics is, is 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 as important. But 
uh, I think, like you said, young kids seeing someone that looks like them, seeing someone who has comes from a background like them, will certainly make politics more accessible. Uh, and I think the thing that's broken the internet, certainly for the far right, is Hamza posted a picture of himself um, leading prayer because it's Ramadan and uh, he was leading prayer with his family. Um, and uh, I've seen Nigel Farage respond to it, and it really seems to have broken the internet. So I think, you know, we're, we're in a moment now where there's going to be a real conversation around uh, the inclusivity of politics and what people uh, like Rishi, like Sadiq, like Hamza uh, represent um, in our politics. He's also the youngest first minister, so he's only 37. What so do you. Young. Yeah, I like. I, that's often something that I don't think is discussed in our politics. I walk around the House of Commons, often the, the, the Palace of Westminster, and I feel like being there, I've dropped the, the, the average age by like 20 years. Yeah, right, because you, you've got similar experience. You were yeah. very young when you, um, when you first did. And I, I think that, I mean, that in itself as well, I think is so important to have young voices going into Westminster, going into Holyrood. I think it's... What, that is what we need. I think that young people more and more need to be like represented in um, politics. But it's, I mean, he was, he was like 26 when he was, um, when he first became a minister, yeah. which is... Have you seen the emo pictures of him? No, I haven't. Oh, it's amazing. He's, he went through an emo phase, clearly. <laughs> and it's been all well, over. when he was a minister. Yeah, no, well, I don't know. <laughs> he but, was young uh, enough. <laughs> but there's been, there's been pictures of him like with, with the whole, with the emo fringe and stuff. Oh the phase God, that we so all went funny. through. Yeah, People born in 1950s and 60s wouldn't have gone through that same phase because the culture was different. So, <laughs> so I, think I would kind of love to have seen that, like my mum going through an emo phase in yeah. her 30s. Or Ian Duncan Smith going through an emo phase. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. But it's true, you know, you walk around you walk around Westminster and everyone's like 103 years old. And But look, the, the, the point I think is, there is a, there's, there, there are things that come with young politicians and candidates. Um, I mean, Barack Obama, when he got elected, was one of the youngest presidents to have gotten elected. And I think there's there's two real things that I think young candidates bring. I think political courage. You're less sort of uh, battle-hardened, yes, but you're also less cynical because you've not for years been beaten down by the politics. So when you're younger, you have a little bit more courage to try ideas that might be a little bit radical or might be a little bit out there. Um, and there's a bit of, I think there's an impatience that comes with youth, mm -hmm. uh, an impatience for change, which I think is a really, really good thing. Because um, often when we talk about some of the serious issues, yes, there are long roads and yes, things happen slowly. But I just think young people bring with them a certain impatience for, for change to happen right now. Yeah. That when you look at the economy, climate change, uh, some of the gender-based violence that we're going to talk about, we can't really wait. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think as well that you know, young people in the past few elections have been some of the hardest groups to reach. You know, they don't go out and vote. They don't feel like represented really in politics. And I think to, that maybe seeing younger politicians um, leading parties in ministerial positions um, and sort of making waves in politics could be the thing that really inspires young people to feel a bit more seen, feel a bit more represented and hopefully get involved in politics in, in whatever way that might be. Yeah. Okay, so our next story uh, is talking about Rishi Sunak. Uh, so Rishi Sunak uh, is attempting to crack down on antisocial behaviour by banning the sale of laughing gas. So those of you uh, who who won't know what this is, you may have seen these small little silver canisters um, that uh, are sometimes recreationally taken uh, because of the effect that it has. I believe it's the same laughing gas that they give uh, pregnant women when they're when they're yeah, giving yeah. birth. Gas and air. Yeah, gas and air. I, I've only ever seen it used once at football when someone broke their leg really badly and they gave them gas and air. And I will say his reaction was hilarious. When he got <laughs> it, but, uh, Having had a baby, I can tell you that stuff is magic. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the plan is to address uh, things like homelessness, begging, and graffiti, but particularly the story has been around laughing gas. What what is your take on this? I mean, it just seems. Uh, I mean, ridiculous it, to me. It just, I don't think it's going to stop. I don't think that it, it being made a class D drug is going to stop people who want to take it from taking it. Um, I don't really think it, it, it is an effective solution. I think it's, you know, someone described it as like the same old tired drug policy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, all it is potentially going to do is, is push it, drive it into criminal hands, which, you know, creates it, other issues yeah. in itself. Um, so it feels like a, it feels like a strange place to be to be clamping down to me 
Um, but there are there are also health risks with it. Um, and, you know, I think that there are concerns around um, some of the damage that it can do for people who use it regularly. So, you know, maybe that's where they're coming from. Yeah, but I think, you know, it seems to me to be a reaction to the Conservatives' polling numbers because it's one of those issues that you just know that these MPs have heard about the canisters being around their communities, have heard about antisocial behaviour, and it's just a reactionary sort of policy, I think, to the their polling numbers and their thinking of, you know, what are some what are some easy things that might be po- popular within our communities. But like you said, it's just a tide. I think our drug policy in general is so poor. It's not based on any sort of health data or what expert opinions are. And it always just seems reactionary. I'll tell you what it seems like to me. It seems like, and I often get frustrated at this, politicians, when they want to seem tough, when they want to look big and strong and tough, they always go for the low-hanging fruit, which is, you know, antisocial behavior or migrants or you know how can we rather than dealing with the un- underlying issues of antisocial behavior which may be economic policy which may be you know poverty and deprivation they go after things like laughing gas um just to just to look tough yeah and i suppose maybe it is it is kind of like an easy way to appear to be acting tough on something and i don't know i think that there have been complaints from maybe um some people about like the litter caused by it but it, it does I see where you're coming from. It does seem like a strange, um, just like a strange place to be focusing mm-hmm. with everything else that's going on at the moment for this to be the kind of like uh, the, the, the direction that the... Uh, sure, surely it hasn't worked. Like well, if you look at the way that they dealt with marijuana, mm-hmm. it didn't bring down usage. No, exactly. And, I, and that's, way. I mean, I feel like it's definitely not going to bring down usage. I mean, even the um, advisory council on the misuse of drugs have said that, you know, they don't didn't advise the government to make it a classy drug mm-hmm. so it, it's going against all advice from sort of medical professionals who know this area um it, i don't think it's going to stop anyone from taking it it might just clean up parks a little bit yeah but maybe that is the intention really as opposed to uh, as opposed to seeing it as um, a controlled substance yeah i definitely think it's indicative of what has been decades of failed sort of drug policy um so Keir Starmer, leader of the labor party has also um been out and about talking about uh his plans to tackle crime uh, and one of the key lines that he has uh, has run one of his key policy areas has been to halve violence against women and girls within a decade um, and that is in line with the theme of our show today and he Keir Starmer has spoken about introducing things like dedicated rape courts um, to increase conviction rates uh, and domestic violence experts taking 999 calls this is an area obviously where you're extremely passionate about and something you've spoken about quite mm-hmm. a lot. What do you think about this call to halve violence against women and girls? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely welcome anyone um, in Westminster or, you know, that's going to be taking this seriously because I think it is one of the biggest issues that we face today. I think that if you just look at the past few years at some of the cases we've seen, um, the recent report into um, the Met Police, you know, there's so many issues that really, really need to be addressed. And I think for a long time, violence against women and girls has just not been seen as a priority. Um, So I think to see politicians putting it on the agenda and sort of like, you know, right at the top of that agenda um, mm-hmm. is is a really, really positive thing. Uh, what do you think about, so the two examples, specific examples he's he cited is the dedicated rape courts, um, dedicated courts to increase conviction rates for, for sexual assault and, and rape um, and uh, domestic violence experts taking 999 calls. Yeah, I mean, both sound good in theory. I'd be interested to know a bit more about what he means by dedicated rape courts and how that would work in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the current uh, the current system for um, rape cases is dire. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, even just getting something I- into court is really difficult. I think it's a one in a hundred um, rape cases end up with a charge, and that's, yeah. that's before you even get to a conviction. Um, so I think that there definitely needs to be more resources ploughed into how we can look at effectively handling rape cases and how yeah. we can get more convictions, you know, when there is when there is evidence that it's happened, um, which in most cases are. Yeah. <laughs> um, people, I don't know how many people know just how appalling the conviction rate for rape is. Yeah, um, it's and, essentially decriminalised. And. You know, the experience that women go through when they go in to report cases. So they're often, you know, feel like, and I've heard this from, mm-hmm. from lots of women, when, they, when they've gone in to describe, you know, what is an extremely traumatic experience, then 
the, the 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 atmosphere and culture is that they're not believed that the onus is on them to prove 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 mm. uh and then in the end they know that the conviction rate one in a hundred yeah. you know is is when it ends up in court and i think the conviction rate is in the single digits percentages yeah. so um it's, it's just it's it's there's horrific. so many barriers and and the emotional trauma of going through something like that is so huge when you've yeah. already suffered such an, an enormous emotional trauma so you know, it's something needs to be seriously done. There was a brilliant documentary um, for Channel 4 a, a couple of years ago. It was called Rape, Who's on Trial? that sort of unpicked a lot of this. And, you know, some of the things that they looked at are just the way that victims have to, you know, repeatedly, repeatedly go through their account. And then, you know, like when you're uh, when you're questioned on that in court, it's just, it's all so traumatic. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if there were dedicated rape courts that were able to deal with that in a way that is more effective than the... S- the situation we have at the moment, then you know that can only be a good thing. So coming up after this, we have Shay Faludin Labod, co-founder of Level Up, and a feminist community campaigner for gender-based justice in the UK. Fubar Radio presents Michael Payne and Marcel Somerville. We've got our first guest of the day in, and he goes by the name Vice Beats. <laughs> I've not been on Twitter for years, so like I, I've now remembered that exists. So what, did you just find out about Brexit? Yeah, I don't know what it was. Yeah, there was, everyone was like, the B word. Or something. Thanks for joining us. So like, apparently something's going on. Is this thing now called being woke as well? I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, you missed that. You missed that. So I just thought I'd been awake, and then someone was like, are you woke? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's been great. Joey Page. I'm delighted to have Craig from Flying Vinyl in the studio. Craig, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a music subscription service where you send people a monthly subscription of vinyl. Yeah, I bought a box set for you as well. Oh, um, bless you. Recently, our product got banned from China briefly because we had the revolution written on the front of the box. They didn't like that. Oh. It was music, and it hasn't been vetted by the Chinese authorities. So oh, we had to... that's a nightmare. <laughs> Did you just, like, recover it and send it out? Or? Yeah. yeah. It's not, like, revolution against the government but access all areas and we have our final guest you know him uh, do you know how much i love this guy well he's here on the phone right I now hello you. david mcintosh yo what's up what's up what's up guys we love you on tv david are you going to do more of this because i'd love to see you in the jungle i think you'd be like the proper tarzan oh, I'm not, I would, but is the jungle a test for me i would love it do you know what i mean but is it a test could you cope with all the bugs crawling all over you you know what i, I couldn't i couldn't see I, that's, I, that i, I would I, like I, to see. see i love that and you've been out with a few snakes so you'll be fine <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> yes! You know, you're right, you've got it. High five, you're high five right now. You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Welcome back. Uh, this is Ali Milani for Politics Uncensored. We are now really blessed to have Shay Faludin Leber joining us, a co-founder uh, of Level Up uh, and a feminist community campaigner uh, for gender justice in the UK. Shay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've been talking uh, about uh, gender-based violence and the experiences of women in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about your organisation? I know uh, one of the key things you guys have been doing is creating digital tools and campaigns to interrupt uh, cultural moments. One of the big ones I saw was flying the banner uh, over a football match or things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so um, Level Up is a feminist campaigning community that uh, works to... um, organize and deliver campaigns, as you said, focused around uh, gender justice. Um, We really do focus on cultural and pop cultural moments because we really feel like those are the real vehicles for change, especially right now. So like you said, we flew a match, um, we flew a plane over um, Ronaldo's return match to Manchester United. Um, He had a pending rape case open at the time. So it was in solidarity with um, Catherine Mayorga, the the victim, sorry. Um, We're also working to end... Pregnant sentences, pregnant sentences for pregnant women um, and pregnant people. Uh, and just now, actually, I've come from, we handed in a petition of 26,000 people to um, IPSO, the press regulator, um, around um, how the press are able to report on fatal domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that, the the, the more recent one, the, the petition. The that fatal, you, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, Oh, gosh, the the way that the media reports uh, fatal, well, domestic abuse in general, but, um, you know, um, abuse that results in death. 
um, it's often framed as uh, you know justified in some way. Mm. Um, it's it's often the victim's fault. Um, the press often uh, find ways to empathise uh, with the the perpetrator, and we know that that means that it lowers empathy for um, the the victim, and it increases empathy for the uh, for the perpetrator. But it also reinforces kind of that normalisation of domestic abuse and. Uh, it kind of throws it away as like frivolous when when people are actually dying at the end of it. We know that it's that uh, fatal domestic abuse happens after a prolonged period of time of abu abuse from coercion to mm -hmm. actual physical abuse. Yeah, that yeah. was something I really noticed. I think it was at the Epsom College. The, yes, um, yeah, Emma Patterson. Yeah, that Correct. was awful. And I really remember that the reports around that were sort of like, you know, this quiet guy and, you know, was she working too much? Blaming her for there because was so she was an ambitious woman or because, you know, she had a job outside the home. There was, there's always uh, almost speculation and trying to find a reason or justification for why uh, she is she is responsible for her own murder, essentially. Mm. We, we were also just talking about Keir Starmer's vow to halve violence uh, against women and girls mm. uh, within a decade. And one of his pledges is to have dedicated 991 callers, 999 callers um, dealing with domestic violence. Mm. And Ellie, you were just talking to me before we came on air about, I think, a case in Kent. Where yeah, the Kent Police. Um, it was they recently had out a, um, a leaflet that was saying, you know, that th there are some situations that aren't an emergency where you can just report the crime online. And they'd listed under the non-emergencies rape, domestic abuse oh, and see. sexual assault. And, you know, it's just astonishing that... that people are still not understanding that like they are these are absolutely life-threatening emergency crimes that need to be treated as such absolutely and and police for and you know the, the met gets blamed for a lot and you know you look at baroness casey's report and of course rightly so but it's not just the met there are you know there are issues up and down the country with police forces uh, and it's not just police forces there is a system systemic violence that happens within within our institutions um the fact that black women are five times more likely to die from uh childbirth I mean, it, within our medical, um, that, that, that's, that's, an, that's an issue. The way that the media reports on the violence of our tra trans siblings, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. um, so there are so many of, like, we talk a lot about, like, the, the bodily violence, rape, domestic violence, um, and it's important that we are talking about those things. Um, but it's also important to talk about the violence that comes from the systems that we create mm -hmm. and the things that we reinforce, you know, with our media and social media now and you know everything else it feels like we're in a cultural moment i think yeah you know we've we had the me too movement which started in hollywood but certainly came through our politics mm -hmm. um we've had the horrific a couple of really horrific cases uh, of women uh being killed and raped sarah mm -hmm. everard being the most recent example yeah. and now we've got the sort of reports into the metropolitan police i'll be honest with you i i've always thought i was a candidate that ran in the in, mm. in an election and we were always told the police are a no-go area, right? You don't talk about the police. Mm. It's just too politically damaging to go to talk about the police. And now it seems like that's open. Do you think we are in a cultural moment where, you know, a lot of these issues that you are campaigning on have come to the fore and I, there's, there's, there's an opportunity for change? I really do feel that. Um, the, the response that we had when um, Emma Patterson was murdered um, people were outraged about the way that that that, that was reported in the media, um, and we and we actually reopened our, our our petition in in response to the reaction that we got, um, and so it really does feel like I, I think we're just in in that moment anyway. You've got the strikes happening. You've just we've got a, a, we're in a cultural moment where I think people are understanding and unlearning some of the things that they thought they knew to be true. And the fact that these, you know, institutions are there to serve us, I think a lot of us are realizing now that mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And um, I mean, we're hearing a lot from from uh, government, from you know Hamza Youssef, from mm. Keir Starmer about violence against women and girls, and it feels like politicians are trying to make this a priority. Mm. Do you feel like enough is being done um, in this space, or do you feel like it's all kind of paying lip service? No, no, not nowhere near. Um, I think we have a huge over-reliance on the criminal justice system to solve things like rape and domestic violence when really, no when really we know they're about our attitudes as a culture, our collective um, practices and the things that we reinforce. There's, some, there's so much work to be done around ensuring that women and non-binary people have the resources that they need, holistic resources that they need. Um, 
there's work to be done around the mental health of, of men and boys and, and what that means and how that manifests for, for the rest mm -hmm. of us. You know, there is so much more to be done than just locking people up. But ultimately, we have to agree that we have a, a, a gender a gender based violence problem in this mm -hmm. in the UK. And like racism, that's something that takes a little bit longer to, to convince people. And I think, you know, there's, there seems to be, as with most things, when we reach uh, serious cultural moments where change is possible, mm. there is a pushback. Yeah. And I think the Andrew Tates of this world, there, there are now more than one. And it's not just him. There's, there's a few of mm -hmm. these rabid misogynist, you know, social media personalities yeah. who are pushing back. Um, and this is where the conversation around educating young men is seriously important. Yeah. Um, I know from, for, for me personally, I didn't really know the experiences of women and some of these, these issues that we've all spoken about today until university. Yeah. It wasn't until I was sat in my kitchen with nine uh, flatmates who were women and seeing what they go through on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and hearing those stories. That's way too late now. Precisely. Precisely. There's, there's, there's work to be done um, around the experiences of, of, of course, of women, but also about how men, how, how both men and women are involved in upholding and reinforcing those things. And we all play a part in upholding some of the misogynistic uh, kind of tropes that, yeah. that you know, we all hold. Um, and so there has to be more of a conversation before you get to university. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not even just the conversation, it's the practice. It's, it's you know, young boys or men being pulled up when they've, when they've done something that's inappropriate. It's, um, it's women having the space or young girls even having the space to be able to say, I'm not comfortable with that or this is my body and this is and, th and yeah. it, what I do with it is my business yeah. um, and it's not for you to touch so there, there is so much work uh, there's so much that needs to be done before you know people kids even start talking yeah mm. but often you know? I, I feel like often the you know it the conversation is all around um, policing yeah or criminal justice mm -hmm. or what is done at the end of the process that's and right not a lot around you know, how do we talk to young men and boys about how to behave? Yeah. How do we push back against, because I think Andrew Tate works and his his elk work in a little bit of a vacuum. That's um, right. They're, you know, they're telling young men and boys, this is what it means to be a man. And no one else is having that conversation. So yeah. whether it's teachers or parents needing, needing to sit down, you know, and I think organizations like yours and others have a huge, you know, we should be inviting in to kind of help shape those discussions. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So the last question I have before before we, I, you know, this has flown by, <laughs> is is the intersection around race and gender. Yeah, and I think uh, it's something that we're going to touch on a little bit later. Uh, when I spoke to some some friends and colleagues around the theme of this show, one of the things I was told to speak about is how often that intersection is really really important. Yeah. is that something you guys work on as well? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the reason we talk about gender justice is because it's an approach that kind of encapsulates and recognizes that there are other social oppressions that affect people's lives as well. Um, and so we have a campaign at the moment that is um, trying to get big beauty brands to remove toxic chemicals from their hair relaxers. Um, a lot of research has come out recently about the, the connection between hair relaxers and a 30% increase in breast cancer and uterine cancer for black women. So we're doing a campaign around that at the moment. But yeah, we are, I mean, race, class, yeah. disability, it's all really important that it's able to have a voice and a space, particularly in, the, in, the, in our feminist work. And, and that's the, the value in cross-solidarity work mm -hmm. and kind of cross-movement work. Um, so yeah, race has to be, I mean, it, and it can't often, not be, I'm a black woman as well. Yeah. So it's just well, too difficult. <laughs> well, I, I remember, uh, you know, the more recent case, I think um, it, it was surrounding in uh, one of the cases in with the monarchy, there was some sort of event and um, one of the black women at the event. I forget, oh, I've Sister Space? Yeah. Sister Space, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I started to look at Sister Space and you start to learn, you know, how, uh, you know, there's all sorts of cultural work that needs to be done. So when That's we're talking right. about domestic violence, it's different, for example, when you come from different cultures and dedicated work is really, right. really important to help drive them down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think work like organizations like yourselves and Sister Space goes such a huge way in, in breaking down those barriers and Absolutely. reaching people. Because often, you know, if we're talking about gender-based issues, it's there's so many intersections, like you said, race, class. Too gender. many different experiences. Yeah. And that's why it's important that those kind of very specialist organizations are resourced and funded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Shay, for joining us. Thank I'm, you this for has flown me. by. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm learning so much uh, just, just, just hearing about the work that you guys do. So that was Shay Faludin Lebert, co founder of Level Up, uh, who are doing some incredible uh, feminist community campaigning work for gender justice in the UK. Uh, and we are so pleased that you could join us. Uh, coming up next, um, I spoke to Vera Hophouse, who's a Liberal Democrat MP for Bath. Um, she was elected in 2017 and served as the Liberal Democrat shadow leader of the House of Commons. Uh, she was the former Lib Dem spokesperson for women and equalities. Uh, Vera has worked on a private member's bill to amend the Sexual Offences Act in 2000, uh, of 2003. Her bill aimed at outlawing acts of voyeurism, especially upskirting, uh, which were not explicitly covered by UK law at the time. And earlier this month, she called for misogyny to be made a hate crime. Uh, I spoke to Vera earlier today. Well, it was uh, fell right in the middle of this Me Too era where um, more and more women were actually pointing to the fact where, where they're being harassed um, and where acts of um, so-called non-contact um, um, sexual violence is still sexual violence and is felt by women deeply um, and victims of upskirting and feel humiliated um, and, and, and feel hurt and ashamed and, and a number of things that those who did the, the the act either knew knew or needed to it needed to be pointed out to them and the whole point about the um, making upskirting a specific criminal offense was really to create a culture where we say this is a vile offense it's not for love um it creates victims um, and we need to have a law that recognizes the victims and is victim centered yeah and so this has particularly come to right light recently uh we had the horrific sarah everard case which i'm sure uh you know all about uh but in the trial of wayne cousins um we we heard how he had uh engaged in indecent exposure prior to um his his murder um of of, of sarah and so there's been a big conversation around how um, those offences aren't taken seriously. And if only they had, you know, maybe something could have been done to prevent um, the, the crime he went on to commit. But not just him. It, the, the, the discussion has generally been that issues like indecent exposure, issues like upskirting are still not being taken seriously enough uh, by the police. What would your response to that be? Well, it's it's appalling that after five years now, um, we still um, haven't sort of instilled this culture where we understand and that women are victims of these vile offences. And although there might be non-contact um, sexual offences, they're still sexual offences. And often, uh, if you get away with minor offences, you go on to commit bigger crimes. Um, and whatever, uh, it, it is an offence. It should be an offence. It should be prosecuted properly. Uh, and, and victims should get justice that they don't um, is, is, a, is a serious failure of the whole system, the police, the CPS, the courts. We just need to take these offences seriously on clamp down on them straight away. We need to do that um, and, and create a culture where women feel safe wherever they are, on our streets, in our workplaces, uh, in our homes. Yeah, and it, so I'm glad you, you said that. You, you spoke about women feeling uh, safe wherever they are. Since your bill um, in 2018, we have heard uh, quite a few stories and allegations against members of parliament and peers. There's been a, quite a few cases of MPs uh, and peers uh, being suspended, being charged um, with sexual harassment or sexual assault cases. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Houses of Commons and in, in the palaces of Westminster, because it seems like uh, the problem isn't just outside, it's inside. Um, absolutely, and we have to sort of stamp it out. And Parliament has created um, tougher procedures, and I welcome those. Uh, and we need to be serious about cleaning up our own house um, as uh, we are about sort of trying to make a difference outside. So you're absolutely right. We can't uh, preach um, uh, to the outside if we are ourselves um, as members of parliament not following the same rules. So we absolutely have to create rules for, for, for our behavior here in the House of Commons um, as we are trying to create rules for people outside. It can't be um, uh, rules for people um, there and then outside and rules for us that is absolutely unacceptable so um, a very tough climb down on any sexual assault or harassment in the house of commons needs to be stamped out in the same way as it does everywhere else so earlier this month uh you called for misogyny to be made a hate crime can you explain a little bit to the listeners what that would mean in practice so this is um about creating safer workplaces where um women particularly but, but any um, employees so it doesn't 
it's just not about women, um, are protected from harassment in the workplace, sexual harassment, but other forms of harassment as well. Uh, and it creates a particular duty in employers um, to um, make sure that these instances um, are prevented. So um, there are new duties for employers and there will be a code of conduct um, and guidelines that will be issued by the EHRC and to make sure that employers know what they um, have to do. Um, around the uh, sexual harassment, there has been cross-party support for the bill. There has been a little bit of a hiccup around um, other forms of harassment um, in terms of speech and um, there, there has been a danger and it's not quite... Um, not quite clear yet because it has to pass the House of Lords. Um, uh, uh, whether um, you know, I get the cross party um, and cross house house support for the bill, and um, that it will also affect um, any other forms of harassment and sexual harassment. People are worried that um, um, the the bill would would create something like a sort of. I think it's been labelled like the banter ban, which is which is nonsense. We what we really want um, is um, to allow employees to feel safe, to 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 raise um, when they feel harassed, and to to raise when they when uh, 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 things are being said or done that cross boundaries. And these workplaces are better workplaces. And most industries are totally behind the bill. So I hope it will and pass its final hurdle in the House of Lords and become law. This ban, you you. You said that you one of the criticisms that you've had has been that it's been seen as a bit of a banter ban. That's interesting to me because I think there is a cultural issue that's happening here, in that um, there are there are some folks certainly who um, have gotten away with or felt comfortable uh, saying and doing things in the workplace that are just inappropriate for decades, and there seems to be a little bit of a cultural shift where now. We're saying those things aren't acceptable. <clears throat> they shouldn't be said in the workplace, and there is a bit of resistance from from some of some of the old cultural guard in that. Do you find that the case? Is that some of the resistance you face to the bill? Yeah, I think you put it absolutely correctly. And as the minister said in her wind-up speech, and the government is supporting the bill somebody's um, banter is another person's harassment. So we have to have open discussions about where the boundaries are. I, I'm, I'm a liberal. I don't want to f f um, you know, forbid speech. I think we need to have free speech, but it has to be done in a respectful way. Um, and it is, has to be done in a way that each side understands um, you know, what the boundaries are. Um, these conversations have to be done and conducted um, in an atmosphere of mutual respect. Uh, and again, as I said before, this can only be an improvement in our workplaces. And, and those people who are trying to resist these sort of forms of respectful behavior towards each other, I, I simply cannot see what their point is. The next point I want to uh, quickly discuss with you before we let you go is the Met Metropolitan Police. Uh, that's been one of the major areas uh, surrounding sexism and misogyny that have been discussed more recently. Uh, Baroness Casey uh, did her report and found that the Met Police are institutionally sexist. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, how could I disagree with that? Um, I, I think um, the, most police forces have understood um, that they have to get their act together and change dramatically some of their culture, cultures that exist with them. Uh, I, I do want to commend my own police force, Avon and Somerset Police. They are making really big strides um, and, 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 and making progress um, against how they investigate violence against women and girls. Uh, and I think they should be seen as a lead force in, in, in this issue. Um, you know, the first is, of course, that, that each force recognizes where they need to do better um, and then put forward um, plans of um, how, how they're finally getting to grips with that. And, and each police force has to do that in their own way. The Met Police has been a, a particular um, focus, um, but it's not the only force where this happens. It's the biggest force in the country. Um, and they're, they're always seen a little bit as a as a sort of lead in everything. But look, look around um, the country and look to those police forces where where, where things are really making big progress towards towards um, uh, improvement, um, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's important that the the police forces know where their culture is going completely wrong. Um, I, I have asked for a long time that misogyny should actually be made a hate crime. The uh, government has been resisting that um, for a long time, but I would I believe that actually if we make misogyny a hate crime, it would make also a very big difference for institutions like the Met Police. Yeah, and so what what practical steps do you think the Met Police need to be take to start to address this? You spoke about your own police force being a um, uh, 
a, a perhaps a good example that the Met Police can look to. What are they doing that the Met Police aren't? Well, I, I, I mean, it, I'm not um, I'm not a chief constable, so it's for um, the leaders of each police form to really sort of set uh, put forward a plan of what um, they're going to do in terms of training, but particularly in terms of vetting police officers. These are the steps that each police force has to do. But then once they they sort of bring their own house in order then for me it is particularly around how do you investigate violence against women and girls and that's where um the operation soteria bluestone um uh, uh, that uh, is very much um a program that the police forces um have set themselves have have made big strides and um uh, 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 uh so all, all I would say is I'm, I'm not managing a police force. I can only set, um, say from the outside where there's a culture that leads to, to these things and, and, and then make sure that we from, from, from Parliament scrutinise what police forces are doing um, and, and get proper scrutiny. But in the end, it's for the management of the police and that's basically the top. That's each um, chief constable of each police force to set out a plan of how they're going to improve. Okay, and lastly... Um... I wondered, you know, a lot of times when it comes to um, these issues, uh, quite rightly, it's women leading um, the cause. What role do you think men have to play um, in being good allies on this issue? What call would you have to your male colleagues and our male listeners about what they can do uh, to to overcome um some of the the serious problems of sexism and misogyny that we have uh both in our politics and in our society? Well, a huge role. I mean, we wouldn't have had the women's um, right to vote if we hadn't, hadn't had our male allies um, in, in Parliament. Then it took a huge amount of time. But but in the end, of course, you know, we are living in a society where we have well, just over 50% of women and and the other um, other half um, men. So, you know, where would we be if we are just sort of splitting our society and say they're on one, on one hand, we've got women, and on the other hand, we have men, obviously the transgender community. But, you know, where would we be if we're just splitting ourselves rather than looking at this as an issue that concerns us all? I, I said previously about um, workplace harassment. This, this is aimed at creating better workplaces for all, not just for women. Um, so, you know, absolutely, I see every man um, as as my ally in this, um, and I appeal to you to to see what what huge advantages will come out of it. it we'll, we'll just create better better ways of communicating with each other. Consent should ultimately the way we we deal with each other, whether that's uh, you know in the workplace or whether that's in our sexual relationships. You know where would we be if we look at uh, um, you know men and women as in permanent battle with each other in conflict. Before yeah, the world. <laughs> it was like this. So please come on board. You know, <laughs> no, definitely. And you know, I think together. one of the, one of the most interesting and important conversations about is about the education to young boys in schools um, uh, around what isn't isn't acceptable behavior, what isn't isn't acceptable practice. Can you quickly come in on that? What do you what role do you think that plays? Yeah, well, it's hugely important. I, I mean, I, this is this is a, a very important issue for educators, but also for families. Um, if, if families don't have um, open discussions with their children about sexual relationships and then all your information you get about sexual relationships from pornography then you know we're in a bad place um we, we need to we need to give, give young people good relationship education and that should start in schools and i've um, asked for a long time that that shouldn't just be you know by some math or english or language teacher like i had to do because i'm a former language teacher and then you had to do these lessons i think it should be done by by specialists by people who really know um, um their stuff and and who, who can really guide young people in the wrong direction about this hugely important issue of relationships okay thank you to vera hobhouse a liberal democrat mp for bath who has been working on making misogyny a hate crime and explicitly covered uh by uk law thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks thank for you. having me so Ellie, we've heard, you know, I think two key things from from Vera there. One is specifically this call to make misogyny a hate crime, uh, a recorded hate crime. And uh, what would your what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, as I've sort of been saying, I think throughout throughout uh, today's um, episode is that like anything that shows that we are taking violence against women and girls seriously, that this is a serious issue that actually has huge impact is welcome. Um, you know, obviously I know people have concerns about, I think it was described as a banter ban and, mm -hmm. you know, not being able, you know, having like their, their thoughts or their 
they're jokes policed. And I, and I think it's really important that we try and get away from that kind of narrative because that's not what this is about. It is about women who are be, who are having to work in really, really uncomfortable environments being protected and, and there being an actual way of saying, no, actually, this is harassment and this is having a huge impact on my life. And I think that creating that space and, you know, like um, Vera said, this has cross party support. It is a very popular um, motion within Westminster. Um, and I think that, that it's really important that people understand that this isn't you know it's not we're not trying to police what you're saying we're not trying to make it a difficult working environment for men it, it's just about in cases where our women are facing harassment and sometimes abuse making sure that, that they are well protected yeah i think one of the things that's coming out of the show today is we're talking about both you know the the criminal justice element of it the police and um the conviction rates and other things and things being made into hate crimes and we're talking about the preventative elements, the education, the cultural work that needs to be done. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the things that I hope people take away is when it comes to the misogyny, gender based violence, harassment, assault, we're lacking in both areas. We're yeah. both we're both not doing a lot of the preventative work that we've done. And the criminal justice system often fails women. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's something that in the documentary that I made um, that, that we highlighted, there is a there is a real um, like <laughs> drive to always turn to the police, to turn to the courts, to try and, and look at how we can punish people for their actions whenever we talk about gender-based violence. And actually, I think that what we need is a real understanding of why this is happening and it needs to be more educational. Like we need to be understanding why young boys are watching Andrew Tate and why they're subscribing to that viewpoint and, and things need to be changing before we get the Wayne Cousins of the world. And I, I think that, you know, when, when we talk about these bills and we talk about making misogyny a hate crime, there's suddenly this huge reluctance where it's like, whoa, 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 are we not gonna be able to do anything? And, um, you know, things are going too far and are we gonna be locked up for wolf whistling? And it's like, no, no one's gonna be locked up for wolf whistling. That's not mm -hmm. what, what we're saying. It's just sending a message that these are serious, serious acts of harassment, which do have a huge impact on women and girls' lives, um, while also trying to educate people so that, those behaviors don't happen in the first place. Yeah, and so joining us now, um, we have Jess Lee, a spokesperson for Our Streets Now, uh, a women-based activist in Sussex. Uh, we're gonna, very pleased uh, to have Jess with us. Uh, Jess has worked uh, across a range of charities, mainly campaigning against sexual harassment. Uh, did a TEDx talk uh, that was um, that was pretty viral around street harassment, um, titled "Street Harassment: It's Not Okay." Uh, and has spoken in the House of Lords about facing uh, about issues facing girls in the 21st century. Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're really delighted to have you. Uh, I'm in the studio here with Ellie Flynn, who's an investigative journalist. Uh, and first, I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about the work of Our Streets Now. Our Streets Now was set up just over three and a half years ago by two sisters, Myra and Gemma Tutton. They experienced a moment that basically turned into a movement. They experienced harassment and thought, you know what, we're, we're not going to stand for this anymore. So they set up a petition to make it a criminal offence to harass women and girls in this country. That was three years ago. In the first hundred days, it received over 100,000 signatures. And I joined just over two and a half years ago to work on the education side and the preventative side. Um, that petition now stands at nearly half a million signatures. We have delivered sessions all across the UK in education. We've spoken on media outlets all across, all across England and Wales, and also spoken with government, parliament, um, to kind of make this become on the agenda and also make sure that every young person, every teacher, every professional gets taught about this thing that we call public sexual harassment. And so what are some of the main calls that you may have? So if I was Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer as the next prime minister, um, you know, and you had my ear for the next 90 seconds, what would be the main calls? that PSH is an everyday reality for many women, girls and marginalised genders and that it's something that we experience on a daily basis. Our laws reflect our culture and currently in UK law it's very, very fragmented and um, bringing a case to the police of street harassment will normally be dismissed because there is no law 
cohesive law covering public sexual harassment. Secondly, nowhere on the relationships and sex education curriculum does it ever mention being taught about street harassment. Yeah, there's a bit of sex education on there. Yeah, there's a bit of healthy relationships. There's nothing to do with street harassment. And going into schools with um, a couple of different charities, I hear these conversations around Andrew Tate, around misogyny, around hate, around all of these awful things on a daily basis. And the less you make it mandatory to talk to young people about this and give teachers the time to be able to, to, to teach this and express this, we're in very, very dangerous territory. What do you think needs to be done to try and deter young boys from follow, you know, from following Andrew Tate, from subscribing to that kind of viewpoint? Do you think that, that schools or the government are doing enough to try and counter that? Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, we know Andrew Tate is not new. Um, his ideas are not new. We had Jordan Peterson before him and more men before that. I've had young boys, I was in a school a couple months ago and a young boy said to me, Andrew Tate's like a father figure to him, um, which I just think is is really sad that if that's the role model boys are, are kind of prescribing to, that's not good enough. I've got a brother and um, he's 16 years old, very much a business a businessman, a hustler, and the first conversation I had with him with Andrew Tate was really difficult. A lot of the boys say, you know, but he's he's a good person who does bad things. And until we start talking about masculinity with our boys, with our men, with every single person, about masculinity does not mean you, you can never cry. It does not mean that you never have to talk about your mental health. Again, I think we're on, on a very, very dangerous path. I think there's no space for boys to talk about these things. Where do they go if, if they're experiencing this what who do they go to there's, there's no kind of space to go you know what you can go here and that's why charities like beyond equality like bold voices have kind of had to be set up because there's no other space for boys or men to go to talk about these things and i think a lot of boys feel angry at the moment especially kind of the white working class boys i work with they're angry they feel attacked because they're being called racist and misogynistic by by the systems we live in and they need someone to blame it on. And um, that, 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 that blame is then put on women and girls and they're kind of being spearheaded by people like Andrew Tate. But he's definitely not new. It's just the way that our media works. He seems to be more everywhere than perhaps Jordan Peterson or other people were previously. Yeah. And Gordon, so what do you think can be done to include boys in the conversation more to make them feel a part of this and not excluded from it? Yeah, I think absolutely has to be framed that boys and men are part of the solution. They are absolutely part of creating a better world for everybody. I think secondly, it's that misogyny harms everybody. This is not just about women and girls being harmed. This is about men not being able to share their emotions. It's about the standards of different kind of men. The biggest killer of men is, is, is suicide, as you kind of get between the 21 and 45-year-old age bracket. I think even starting in school from like in year six, I remember we were separated into boys and girls and one group learned about periods and the other learned about sex. When actually, you know, I, I think we should both be learning about all these things because they'll all impact us kind of once in their lives. So I think it is about from six years old, from very young age, being taught about consent and respect and, you know, kind of just that you keep your hands to yourself, we respect one another and we're kind and then building up that as they grow. But I do think the more you talk about something, the less stigma it has, the less fear it holds and the less power it holds. So we have to be having these conversations and we have to continue talking about these things, not just when people like Sarah Everard are murdered, not just when Andrew, another Andrew Tate comes into the world, because there will be another one. There'll be, there'll be plenty more, but, but on a continual, continual basis. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also about facilitating conversations to learn from each other's experiences. That's often been some of for me personally the most powerful moments of learning is where i get to hear from women's experiences so i think for all of the men listening they will be astounded at the scale of public harassment the, the everyday public harassment that women face I, is that something that you think you know needs to get out there for for i mean i should also say on the record you know men also do occasionally experience it it's, it's at far less frequency but the the consistency when I've spoken to friends, family, colleagues, and you know, women like yourselves, the frequency at which it happens to women in the public is astounding. And I don't think people know, men particularly. No, I remember when I did my TED talk and um, I was 18 and I'm 22 now, so it's nearly four years ago. 
I had so many um, men, specifically dads, come up to me afterwards and go, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't know. I, I had no idea. And over the years, I, I can even now get messages saying, you know, I had a conversation with my daughter or my niece and she'd never told me about that she now takes the different route home to school because there's a flasher in the woods um, or she's experienced this on the bus home. I think if any men are listening, I urge you to have a conversation with the women and girls in your life because I can almost assure you that every single one of them will have a story and that story will be really sad and um, really upsetting and I think that's why I started doing this work is because eventually when, when I'm a mum or my cousin's older I truly hope no one ever has to go through some of the stuff that I did whilst growing up the relentless harassment the shouting the grabbing the groping and yeah I think men and boys don't always realize it's a problem until they see it or they experience it themselves yeah Thank you so much, Jess. That was Jess Lee, a spokesperson for Our Streets Now, a women's-based activist in Sussex who has worked across a range of charities, uh, mainly campaigning on sexual harassment. Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, coming up next, we've got the word on the streets. This is where our wonderful producers go out uh, onto the streets uh, to find out what people really think. And we'll hear about that after this. Fubar Radio presents... Access All Areas. So we have our final guest, um, oh, on... Hello. 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 So what is your type? So obviously, someone who ain't sliding in the DMs. I go for media ugly. Oh. But, hear me out, I didn't realise this until after my last ex. When I looked Ooh, back burn. at my exes and I was like, wow, because love is really blind. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, this is clearly my type. Access all areas. Every Thursday. Fubar Radio. Right, so coming up next, we have uh, one of my favourite segments of the show, which is Word on the Street, where we get to hear uh, from real people. Not that the people we haven't heard today aren't real people, but people on the street. Uh, and today we asked them, if you were to ban one antisocial behaviour, what would it be and why? I would ban spitting on the street, um, mainly because I think it's really unnecessary. And I think if you're doing it out of anger, there are better ways to express or deal with your anger than spitting on the street. These idiots that park these rented lime bikes right across the, the pavements, in across driveways, across, across people's doorways, they should be fined for that and the money should be sent to charity catcalling i just i don't think it's fair at all how like especially men can make people just feel so uncomfortable and unsafe when they're just walking around and it's just a horrible feeling congregations of large groups of um sort of young people my son recently got admitted to hospital through violence through that just not letting someone join them for football ended up in hospital with uh, four stitches inside his mouth and three on the outside um, yeah, just through violence, through a big group congregating. Abusive behaviour. I just think there's no excuse for being abusive, especially towards people that can't defend themselves. People texting on their phones while they're crossing roads uh, and also when they're on bikes. Well, I actually think that banning antisocial behaviour isn't way to go. I think we need to encourage pro-social behaviour. So I, I wouldn't ban antisocial behavior i would find ways to make people behave in a pro-social manner and socialize better because there is enough staff banned out there that is not effective and people do those things anyway so it's for me more interesting question is how we can invest into infrastructures and activities that actually will result in less antisocial behavior perfume on the tube why makes me gag <laughs> <laughs> perfume on the, on the tube that caught me uh, I didn't see that one coming so Ellie if you were to ban one's antisocial behaviour what would it be and why following someone I think there's just nothing quite like the threat of someone walking closely behind you late at night particularly um, so yeah without a doubt that would be it for me yeah for sure okay and we come to the end of what has been a amazing show and uh, I know I have learned so much first of all a huge thank you to Ellie Flynn who has been a fantastic co-host thank, thank you so you. much for joining us uh, and to all of our guests 
guests today. Uh, Shea Faludin Lebird, co-founder of Level Up, Vera Hophouse, uh, Liberal Democrat MP for Bath, and Jess Lee, spokesperson for Our Streets Now. Make sure to follow us on Instagram on Politics Uncensored. Uh, you can also find us on demand uh, on podcast form on all good podcasts and platforms, including Spotify uh, and iTunes. And you can follow me on Twitter at ARMilani underscore. You can search Ali Milani. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Next week, we have a great show where we're going to be talking about the future of healthcare in the UK and the future of the NHS and how future proof our national health service is and will be joined by actress Nicola Thorpe. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Salams. <laughs>